Hey y'all, welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. I'm Michelle. And Christina. So in the beginning of our resistance series, we talked about what resistance means to us. And in the second installment of the series, each of us gave scriptural examples of resistance from the Bible. And today, our final episode, I'm so sad to see it go, um, <laughs> our final episode of the resistance it's series. series. <laughs> right. It'll keep coming up, though. I think so. I think so. <laughs> each of us, uh, we want to speak about historical and contemporary figures who embody resistance. So historical and present figures of resistance is on the table today. Now, ladies, I'm excited to hear who you're bringing to the table. Michelle, who you got? Well, I was thinking so much about how Women's Appreciation and Recognition Month, I don't call it just Women's History Month, <laughs> I think about the time in which we set aside a whole month of the year for what we should yeah. be doing every day. Um, and how in the month of March in 1965, on the 7th of March, in fact, Amelia ah. Boynton was part of not just the organizing group, but the front lines of the March in Selma that ended up being labeled Bloody Sunday. And it really was the image of Mrs. Amelia Boynton being com just completely unconscious because a police officer knocked her at the base of the neck with a billy club, mm. uh, a trooper, I think actually mm. it was, who struck her first on the shoulder, then struck her then at the base of the neck. And I I read about Mrs. Boynton uh, years ago. And then again, after Selma came out, uh, her mm. story, they dig into it a, a little bit in the film. And I was really glad to see that plot line fleshed out. But according to her interviews, she gave a trooper a dirty look because he was smacking her in her shoulder to try to get her to move along. Mm. So she glared at him. And after that, he knocked her out. Mm. And when I read that, y'all, mm. just what, what is it about how we look yeah. and, how, and our faces, what people read, did, did her presence and her confrontation her boldness to confront someone. How dare this petty little Negro have mm -hmm. the audacity to give a trooper a dirty look right. after he hit her on the shoulder with a billy club. She going to give him a dirty look. And that's what got her knocked out. What is it about us? I thought about Emmett, right? I thought mm -hmm. about Tamir. I thought about all the different looks and little actions. Um, and it's amazing to me that one, that's what got her knocked out. And two, she was not showing up as a person who was not trained or ready for what was to come. And she knew in her heart still that her face had to bear the expressions of resistance. Amelia was one of the main coordinators for that march, but she also housed a ton of different students who were being trained in SNCC. Um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She and her husband, Samuel, I think his name was, they were housing students, training them, encouraging them to stay in the fight, keep going. And she knew the risks. I think she had actually been hit before, and I know she had been jailed before. She was charged with criminal provocation, which hits me hard. Um, wow. And 
the life I live, what I do each day. There are all these made up phrases for police to detain me. There are mm-hmm. all these random artificial reasons that uh, have nothing to do with the actual law, but someone will make up a reason to hold me wow. and they get away with it because mm-hmm. I'm black, because I'm a woman. And so you can charge someone with criminal provocation. That's another phrase that really sticks out to me from mm-hmm. her story. And she was notorious for not backing down. I mean, that's the phrase that they used to use about her. She's notorious for being bold. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So I love her. And I was just thinking about how it's just, it's great that we're launching in March, Bloody Sunday, March yeah. 7th. And Amelia just, he's always on my mind. I love that. Yeah. That's so good. It's as if, like, it's like they, the deputy expected her what? To right. be abused with a smile? I mean, exactly. I just don't understand that. Yeah. 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 That's, mm-hmm. that's I'm so glad you brought Mother Boynton to the table for real. Cause Amen. She, Amen. No, because she's not. She need a, to be a, here. People sleep on her. That's you know, right. Like, uh, hello. Like, right. she, seriously, she was a bedrock. You know, there's, right. so, I'm so glad that you brought her um, to the table. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, and so, yeah. so, Christina, who you got, good? Well, we're going to go further back in history. <laughs> back Just a little further back <laughs> to the 1800s. And so, um, I am a big fan and have been for a number of years of Maria Stewart, uh, also mm-hmm. referred to as Mariah Stewart. And mm-hmm. um, there's, a, there's a variety of things that I really dig about um, her legacy and her writing and her uh, vocation. Uh, but a lot of it, um, well, one, she she's a black woman. Uh, two, um, a, de- a devout believer, right? And that informed what it meant for her to be a black woman. So mm-hmm. her faith allowed her to rightly see what it meant to be for her as a woman in, in society and to be a black woman in society. So that was the lens in which she understood herself. And so what, what you know, her... I, one of her big, I, I think, um, claim to fame would be um, that in the myth, in the midst of what people would consider to be uh, uh, promiscuous settings, and that just simply means settings with both men and women, uh, Stewart was giving speeches, and they were both deeply theological and political anthropological, sociological, and she would basically make this case that could weave all of these uh, fragments together uh, around human dignity uh, for both African-Americans and for women. Uh, She she herself uh, was widowed very early, um, and her husband, who passed away, was older than she was and had uh, uh, some amount of money in order to basically to care for her, but she was swindled out of that. So many years of her life were, were uh, spent trying to get money back from um, white businessmen who took advantage of that and, who t- and took her resources. So she was left uh, in many ways destitute when she wasn't supposed to be. So her husband had had, had me- made means to provide for her, but she was not afforded those means. And so she also never had any children. And so, uh, but yet at the same time, a big part of her her work was lifting up this idea around motherhood as a means of empowerment, 
particularly for black women. Um, and so if you think about, you know, the tension between contemporary or the journey of feminism, this is a very interesting perspective in the 1800s to have someone like Stewart coming forward and saying that, no, actually it is the way that we mother our children that um, embeds in them this sense of dignity, this sense of empowerment. It is mm-hmm. one of the ways in which we push back, push back and we, correct the notion of white supremacy is the way in which we love and we rear children of color. And so, um, and this is from a woman who did not have children. Um, and so I, I, I actually, I find that to be one of those kind of, uh, a characterological quality that I really enjoy about Stuart. Cause I think sometimes you're not able to enter into conversations, um, unless you check certain boxes mm-hmm. and, um, and she could still speak to the beauty of motherhood as someone who um, was widowed early and never had had children. Um, and so um, I think that's a, a beautiful value that she she brings to the table. Um, I also just really enjoy hearing her voice and how that voice later began to influence the voices of others like that of Sojourner Truth or mm-hmm. also of Frederick Douglass. Right. And so yeah. um, this this really bold intersection of those disciplines coming together. And like I said, so bold that she was able to speak in these spaces that other women, not only just black women, but, but majority culture, white women had been denied these spaces in uh, mixed gender spaces to speak truth. And she was so provocative at times. Um, the dialogue that she would have in group was, was also really compelling. And by in group, I mean Mm -hmm. the conversation that she would have about black men's responsibility. So this is a black, so think about how provocative that would be. So not only is she speaking against, (laughs) not only is she speaking against about white supremacy, right. And about, um, and, and looking at that from both a theological and sociological perspective, she's also looking at black men and saying, let me tell you what I need from you all. Well, let let me, let me tell you what I need you all to bring to the table. And, um, Yeah. And so in that sense, you know, she 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 caught disagreement and frustration from certainly majority culture folks, but but in group from African-American men who also pushed back. thinking, Should you have this space to say these things? Not to think, is it true what she's saying, but should you even be saying it? Hmm. And so um, which happens a lot. Right. So anyway, uh, I've made my case as to why I'm a fan. (laughs) And so, Kevin, why don't you uh, join us and who would you like to bring to the table today? I'm really glad that you uh, taught us about Mariah. um, (laughs) Right. Because she was giving everybody the business. I love that. (laughs) I'm like, motherhood as a means of empowerment. Can we can we please? We need pause. That needs to be recovered. Come on. That's powerful. She did not have kids. And she was about that. That's amazing. That is that. There's so many implications for that. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. even know where to start. So, um, so yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. About I didn't I actually didn't know all of that about uh, Mariah Stewart. So I'm really glad that you um, shared that. Well, I am excited um, to bring my person to the table. <laughs> so, we are moving forward in time, not to the present, but still in the past. In the late 60s and early 70s, we are going to, I'm bringing Shirley Anita St. Hill Chisholm to the table. Wow. Shirley, I love her. (laughs) Um, 
I really do. Uh, she was the first African-American woman elected to the U.S. Congress, and she represented the New York New York's 12th congressional district. Now, in 1972, she became 1972. Sorry. She became the first black candidate for a major party's nomination. This would be the Democratic Party. Um, and she ran for uh, that party's nomination to become president of the United States of America. Now, I do want to say this because uh, I feel bad that I'm even having to introduce her in this way because of, she said explicitly, and I do want to quote her here. She said, when I die, I want to be remembered as a woman who lived in the 20th century who dared to be a catalyst for change. I don't want to be remembered as the first black woman who went to Congress. And I don't even want to be remembered as the first woman who happened to be black that made a bid for the presidency. I want to be remembered as a woman who fought for change in the 20th century. That's what I want. Okay. And Shirley Chisholm died uh, in January 2005. And so I want to honor her uh, request. uh, But uh, because of the history in this country of erasing black women and our accomplishments, I had to lead with that. So I do want to fill in a little bit more. Right here. I don't know. I'm not sure. So, uh, so I want to fill it out just a little bit more, right? So that's not all we know about her. But right. I think that's important. She, anyways, I'm, I'm going to get to that. But uh, so I want to lead with the fact that Shirley Chisholm, who you saw was who you got. Okay. Mm-hmm. Her campaign slogan for uh, her co- congressional run was Fighting Shirley, Unbought and Unbossed. She lived this motto, y'all. She embodied wow. it. Love it. Till the day she died. Uh, she yep. rebelled against the status quo, against the white establishment. Uh, she she rebelled against the machine. That's what she called um, kind of like the political establishment when she was referring to it in her book, Unbought and Unbossed. And so when she first entered the Congress as a junior member, you know, she was assigned to the Agricultural Committee, okay? She is representing the 12th District in New York, okay? Black and brown folks. And they put her on the Agricultural Committee. And Shirley was not happy about that. And so she called up John McCormick, who was the Speaker of the House at the time. And long story short, right, there was, you know, a little back and forth, but she was actually reassigned to the Veterans Affairs Office, or I'm sorry, Committee, And she was also added to the uh, Education and Labor Committee, which was the committee of her choice because that she was an educator uh, before she even ran for Congress. And so and as as a congresswoman, she hired mostly women, okay, for her congressional staff from the receptionist to her top aides. And she made sure that over half of her staff was black. Not just for the sake of being black, but she made sure that they were competent, loyal and wow. were able to do their job well. But she said, no, we coming up in here and we changing stuff. Like that's, wow. that's what Shirley did. And so I just really uh, respect her and I love her for that. And as you guys know, she did run uh, for the uh, Democratic Party's nomination. And much like uh, Mariah Stewart, she ran into a lot of sexism, y'all, misogynoir within Congress and the Black Caucus, okay, within the Black Caucus, they were reluctant to support her presidential bid. You know, she was not endorsed by the Black National Political Convention in 1972. And to add mm. insult to injury, she had to contend with the racism 
in the women's movement, okay? So at the time, Congresswoman Bella uh, Abzug and Gloria Steinem supported uh, Shirley symbolically, right, with their lips. But when the rubber met the road, they could not stand with her and they went with McGovern. And so uh, they were in complete alignment with Shirley, but sadly, the only reason why they couldn't stand with her and throw their weight behind her was because she was a black woman. Of course, they would never, ever say that explicitly, but that's what it really was. And so Chisholm was battling with black men. <laughs> she was battling with white wow. women. I mean, she was battling with the sexism within Congress. I mean, she was trying. She actually wanted to build a coalition, though, and represent white women, black women, black men, like everybody. You know, she really wanted to be the president for all people. That's right. uh, but people just they weren't having it. But she she went in uh, knowing that she wasn't going to win the presidency. She knew that. You know, she knew that she was going in with the express purpose of actually paving the way for the marginalized people. And so she worked for all people like she knew that, you know, and I think that's just so that's just so gangster to me. I'm like, what? Like she knew she was not going to win, but she was like, I know what I'm doing. Like, you know? And she just set her face like Flint and she went after it. You know, she didn't win. Yeah. But man. She really lived unbought and unbossed. And y'all know I live by that motto, okay? Unbought, right. unbossed, unbothered. Okay, that's my little addition. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I love Shirley, y'all. I really do. I love her. And I just wonder, you know, what would she think, you know, now? I wonder if she'd be a little disappointed that maybe we don't have, we haven't had another, you know, black woman put her hat in the ring for the presidency. But I think she'd be very happy to to see what's happening now. So I don't know. I, I'm always curious about where, what she would think of the mm. landscape now, you know? So that's who yeah. I, I got. <laughs> I love it. Love Shirley that. taught us. She taught us, yo. She taught us. That's so <laughs> she true. Taught us. She taught us before we even knew we needed teaching, like help us. So... <laughs> So I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful for Mariah. I'm grateful for Mother Boynton. So uh, who do y'all have, though, uh, thinking about present figures and contemporary figures? Who comes to mind uh, for you as an example of embodied resistance um, in our present day? Yeah, well, in our so in my context, there are so many people I could name just even thinking of a woman who marched with Mother Boynton, right? Sister Antonia Ebo works for the Archdiocese or retired from the Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri. So she is right up the street from my church in the uh, old folks home. And I get to go see her sometimes. Uh, so she's a true blessing. You can really feel her spirit over the region where I work. And we on um, the evening of November, oh, I want to say 24th um, in 2014, we actually marched right past her building um, when, the, when we heard the news of that Darren Wilson was not going to be charged for murdering Michael Brown Jr. And on that night, I felt Mother Ebo in, I just sensed her spirit in the faces and the organizing skills of a number of the Ferguson activists. Um, one, there were there were friends of mine down there, like Christian Blackman, Kayla Reed, uh, Brittany Packnett, Netta. I mean, it was 
there, there were so many women on the front lines of de-escalating, managing crisis, holding space and showing forth in the most provocative, but truthful. I mean, it was just all we shouted at the police was the truth. We live here. You have locked us in and you've told us now to disperse. And so that's, I don't know if you guys remember about the injunction that happened after that night, but um, these activists, these people who no one had written a book about them, there was no sort of major organizing committee that the news was following them ahead of their resistance that the no one knew or saw too much of all of them, who she was already and probably Brittany Packnett too, but not everybody outside of St. Louis knew about the hard work that people like Nabia, Christian, Tara, and Kayla were all doing. And they were doing it together despite crazy distinctions in their personal lives. I would even say differences. And so the unity of the Ferguson activists that I have watched, that uh, that I've been trained under, I've sat at the feet of people who are 10, 12 years younger than me, and I couldn't, I couldn't be happier to testify that I see Amelia Boynton in that boldness to give somebody a dirty look when they strike you. I see Antona Ebo in that, um, what's her famous quote? I'm, I'm a Negro, so this is my problem. I know that I'm messing that quote up, but whatever she said, whatever Sister Antona Ebo said at that press conference where they just, they pushed her up in front of the microphone. She wasn't in line to speak. They put her in front of that microphone in 1965. And Antona, who was literally watching over us on that night in November, she was there. And I have a deep appreciation for the activists who look at our goals, who look at our essentials, the commonality that binds us together. And that is what I feel welcomed into, despite the fact that some of the folks I named are not Christian, despite the fact that some of the folks I named certainly would not feel comfortable in reformed spaces. I know that they are my sisters and they're continuing to teach me. And I would encourage anybody to really dig deeper into the Ferguson activists. Twitter is crazy and it's nuts, but there's some, there's some real gems up in there. There's some good books being written by some incredible activists. So those are my, those are my inspirations from today. Love, love, love that insight. That's good stuff. That's has um Antona Ibo Ibo given you any, you know, kind of words of wisdom or nuggets on what to do during this time or this this administration or anything like that? Oh, I know, right? Yeah, she's she is very much um it, it's so cool to watch people blend the past and the present and to say, do you know, um, she actually shared a story with me about deciding to get up to try to take the Eucharist um, Mm. at the same time as some white people. And, you Mm. know, that was not allowed at all. Uh, Negroes had to wait until all the white Mm. people in the church took communion. Mm -hmm. And Mother Ebo got up, stood in the same line as the white folk and said, I'm going to do this 
every Sunday so that they have to look at me and tell me go to the back. I'm not going to sit here and just know that I belong at the back because I don't belong in the back. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to show people that I am your equal and you have to actively take the energy to push me to the back because that's not where I belong. And she got in a lot of trouble every week, but that's what she said (laughs) we're doing now. (laughs) She said, that's what you're doing now. They know that they're wrong. Right. She's like, they know I'm a human because she was a nurse and she wasn't just treating white people, um, not just treating black people. Mm-hmm. So they knew she was a human. They knew she was an equal. So wow. she said she wanted to. That's good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. That is good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. What you got, Christina? Who you got for us? Well, you know, I think to, to continue in, um, kind of that trajectory or that theme of what I talked about with Stuart, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea of empowerment, um, mothering as a form of empowerment. And, you know, I just want to shout out particularly um, black women who have made the decision to, and I'm saying this as someone who people would consider to be like a career woman, if that's a thing, like that that language is probably how people would see me and describe me. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I just want to make space for black women who have uh, pursued things like homeschooling or excellence in um, homemaking as mm-hmm. a means of, of resistance, of saying that even though I descend from a people who um, who were brought here to make other people's homes, I am going to make my home a value. I'm going to feed and nurture my children um, and that my children have value. And so in that sense, we have a contemporary movement um, emerging in the country of African-American of African-American homeschoolers. And their homeschooling is not based out of some of the um, some of the social assumptions that we see in other movements of homeschooling. Right. right? You, have some, you have some movements of Come homeschooling. On. We're looking at the rise of integration. We're seeing people remove themselves from the school system, right? Yes. And yes. other people who are who legitimately want, feel like that is their biblical call, right? So you have you have you have some nuances there, and you have some overlap. But what we know about the emerging group of African American homeschoolers, both women and men, is that um, not only is there a faith motivation, but there is a motivation around recognizing that they're 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 wanting to better empower and protect and guard and shield their children from a racist system, which is in the school systems. And so, and so in that sense, African-American homeschoolers are emerging as this population of folks and not only because of their faith convictions, but also this way of resisting um, racist assumptions about their children's abilities and capabilities um, that they're finding themselves really digging into this idea of educating their own in their house um, or it, or in, or not even just in their house, but in their city, in their community, right? So the classroom becomes the world. The classroom becomes society for these kids. And so I can think of some women who I know who left, um, you know, uh, the traditional work world to be able to offer this to their own children. One of my really good friends uh, down south, her name is Damika Jones, and I consider her to be one of the best. Uh, early elementary school teachers that I've had contact with um, and what she's been able to do and provide for her own children. I see as 
as a very real witness. It's a form of ministry, and it's also a form of empowerment for her children. She's quite cognizant of the statistics that come around African-American uh, boys, how they are tracked through school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm. When when they are when when they go from being cute to being Come seen on. as um, Come on. dangerous, as yes. dangerous exactly right that third grade that third grade year right and so right. Um, and, and as a way of um, of of empowering her children taking up that that work within the house and this is radical because here's the thing. Whereas there are some groups of women, like majority women, white, white American women, who might look at the idea of homeschooling or homemaking or whatever the home, mm-hmm. the home sphere as a form of oppression. Black women have a different negotiation with that system because we were, we were brought here to take care of other people's homes. And so sometimes even that feminist conversation about the, the space of the home is, um, it's it's more nuanced for Black women, and so I I think that it's important for us to honor those spaces and organizations that are there to support and and to empower these women. For example, like Mocha Moms, which is a national oh. organization that um, that is made up of African American women who um, who primarily stay at at home or who do not work in the traditional workforce, however you want to use that language. Um, and these are women that are doing that because they see motherhood as a form of empowerment, and so. Versus motherhood as a form of restriction or burden or isolation. Um, But they're able to do this in liberty, not thinking that one is better than the other. And in my case, what's considered as a as a uh, as a working woman. Right. Um, But as a form of empowering their children. Right. And so anyway, I just want to take a moment to honor those those women who I think continue in that trajectory, that legacy of Stuart. Yeah, that's a word, especially for me as a, I am a public school parent, like for life. Um, and I, love I recognize the sacrifices like I I am going to have to also join a homeschool group um, mm-hmm. because I have two black children in a racist system. And um, yeah, I mean, I just I love having both of those. I want to see my kids learn Afrocentrism and I, and I want to see them used as vessels, but I know that when they're emptied out, we got to pour back into them as well. So it's going to take, I think the unifying of those communities and support for the other from mothers who don't participate in the same, you know, I mean, that's, that's boss. That's, that's lit. That's really good. I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people, first of all, are not even aware of the black homeschool movement, number one. And number two, I don't think that they often understand that the reasons why uh, black women and men are choosing sure. to have their uh, right, children right. homeschooled really in response yeah. to the racist curriculum um, that centers whiteness over against blackness mm-hmm. and or mm-hmm. not even just blackness, just uh, anything that is not white, right? So our children don't get to learn um, about their own history and the history of others uh, who were here before everybody else. Sure. You know, so I'm I'm really glad that you brought that to the table for real. Yeah. What you got for us, Akimini? I have uh, Tashara Jones and no Michelle. Yes. <laughs> Tashara Jones, I am excited to bring her to the table. 
I love her. She became the uh, treasurer of St. Louis back in 2013, and she is the first woman to hold the office in the history of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And she's currently running for mayor of the city of St. Wow. Louis. So I'm excited to bring her to the table. I learned about her uh, when I read a forthright, very direct letter. <laughs> she wrote... <laughs> to the Post Editorial Board in St. Louis, okay, on February 6, 2017, I think is when it was um, written. And so in the letter, she is uh, writing to Todd Roberson, who is the editorial page editor at the Post. She's declining an interview due to what she describes as thinly veiled racism and preference for the status quo. You know, so she had me at that quote. I was like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what is she about? And so so to me, Tashara embodies what it means to resist in our present political climate. Her resistance, it shines brightly here when she discusses like the paradigm that she's going to employ when it comes to her policies as mayor of uh, St. Louis. And this is what she says. She said, I will look at every issue through a racial equity lens. I will ask if every question we make helps those who have been disenfranchised, redlined, and flat out ignored for way too long. And so to me, like Chisholm, Tashara understands that she works for the people and she is prioritizing the needs uh, of those who have suffered in St. Louis due to the machine, as Chisholm would call it, uh, that upholds the status quo and benefits the law, um, the few, um, over against those who are trapped in cycles uh, of intractable poverty. And so that, to me, I just feel like that's something that's really rare to see in politicians these days. They often get it twisted and forget that we elected them and that they're actually supposed to be working on our behalf. And so to me, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, And then she just talked about, you know, wanting to put resources into mental health services, um, substance abuse centers, reentry programs, you know, like actually treating people as human beings, you know, and rehabilitating them. She wants to give them job training uh, so that they can contribute, you know, to the city, to the to the state, you know, and 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 people want to do this. You know, and so I, I so for me, that to me was like, dang, like I man, I think Chisholm would just would love to Shara, you know. And so to me, they, oh, yeah. this is just like a perfect like union here. And so uh, so toward the end of the, the letter, I just have to bring this in because uh, she just gave <laughs> a read like only a black woman could do. Yes. And so, <laughs> and so this is what she said. So I, I so I get the sense that the uh, the editor who, who wrote this, you know, uh, post about, you know, Ferguson and St. Louis and whatnot is a newcomer coming from Texas, right? And so he's talking about the city and but clearly doesn't have a grasp on what really plagues the city. So he he centers a lot of the issues on graffiti, you know, and the buildings looking in disrepair. And it's like, come on now, what? Like, you, you know, and so just not really identifying the systemic racism that really is what keeps, you know, the city and the people bound. So, uh, so this is what she says to them. I just have to read this because it's just amazing to me. <laughs> so she says to him, we woke up. No, no, I'm sorry. No, she said, I think you were in Texas during Ferguson. If so, you may have missed what happened here. We woke up. Black people woke up. Allies stood up. Young people spoke up. 
Our best minds listened and produced a pair of remarkable documents, the Forward Through Ferguson Report and For the Sake of All Report, which I know you know about this, Michelle, mm-hmm. <laughs> that are blueprints for the next four years of mayor. Uh, for of a mayor, sorry. I understand that the post-dispatch is hurting right now. I hear that soon you will have to lay off more employees. With readership down to below 100,000, it makes sense why you will resort to a more inflammatory news reporting style to boost readership. I think there might be enough city voters who are with me and are ready to vote for that change in March and April. After we do that, you and your dog will be safer, and maybe you'll consider hiring an African-American editorial writer. I was like, tea? That was some hot tea. So, so I was like, I just had to read that, y'all. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. No, she is the truth. She seems to really be the real deal. You know, um, very authentic. And so I just had to bring that in. And so I don't, it was just kind of crazy how I just stumbled upon, you know, that letter and came across her just this last month. So she's my example of yes, a resistance. And I know you know much more about her, Michelle, but yeah, I just thought that was powerful. <laughs> and it's important to actually appreciate people that aren't in our uh, same cities that don't live around the corner yeah. from us, people that we wouldn't know. I mean, LeVar Burton tweeted about Tashara. I was like, what? <laughs> I was so happy to see that. <laughs> hey. Hey, the I rainbow, also y'all. think about like, that's right. You know, read that rainbow, man. Hello. Um, there's so much. <laughs> but aren't black women always, always, isn't it us? Or our, our fellow sisters and mothers of color, women of color are always the ones who have to stand up and say, I don't think you're reading below the surface here. In yeah. fact, I think that black women are the ones who are actually showing people the real surface because the natural sort of habit of people in the United States is to cover the truth thinly, like Jones yeah. laid out, right? She's just... Mm-hmm reading what's directly under that sheer piece of mess that yeah, half of the post-dispatch editorial board is constantly covering up. That's, I mean, that's what Mariah did. That's what your friends are doing, Christina. That's yes. what Shirley did. Shirley was like, I ain't going to be the president. Right. But, she, but somebody, somebody has got to right. stand in line and demand the Eucharist. Someone has to show up to that evil judge Every day and say, give me justice against my adversary. And that judge, like in the book of Luke, you know, that judge didn't fear God or man because he said it. He He said, I know I'm evil, (laughs) but you bothering me so bad that I'm going to hear you. That's resistance. I mean, at least to me, I see all these stories connecting and coming together. And the beauty of it overall is that we are done despising each other. That is the artificial, I would, I would say insemination. I'm sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what the culture of this country has been trying to force us to birth. They've been trying to make us birth self-despising and hatred for each other. But women yeah. of color are coming out and saying, no, we, we done. We got each other's back. And that's what I appreciate about your testimony, Kimini, saying, like, I don't even have to testify about somebody in my own town. I, right. This is a woman of color. This is my sister. And right. that's that resistance. That's resistance to me. That's it. Exactly. Solidarity in that in that regard. And I just think it's 
I think what I love so much about Tashara and Shirley is that they are actually trying to resist within the system. So resistance mm-hmm. doesn't just have to be outside of the system. It can be within um, sure. and, and calling them to account, which I think is really powerful. Cause I think sometimes when people hear it, they're like resistance, what are you trying to do? Start a coup? Like, you know, and it's like, not necessarily, <laughs> but it's like the, these women are working. We're, we're working in the case of Shirley and in the case of Tashara now in the present working within the system to right wrongs and, and bring justice to be a reality for, for the people that they're serving. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, every, every I think all of these are examples of um, kind of like womanist vantage point theory. And mm-hmm. so this this idea that where you are, like you're um, where you're stationed socially, gives you insight into what is around you, ahead of you, and so you can see things in a system that people who are in different places just simply can't see. So Stewart or Chisholm or anybody else's the um, kind of the wisdom that they have is a product of where they live within that system. So when we think about you know um, you know you know, black women kind of pushing back and kind of being able to speak into injustice in a way that's very distinct to that group. A lot of that is birthed from where they are within the system, right? And so they are able to see who's ahead. You know, I do this activity with folks around, you know, um, uh, you know, unpacking the, you know, the backpack of privilege, the white privilege, right? And so, and usually when people do that activity, you take a step forward based on what privileges you have and the ones that you've been denied, you stay in place. So what ends up happening, you see this physical representation of stratification. But what you'll find is that the people who are at back at the back who kind of have to stay put because they don't have the same privileges, they can see just how far everyone else is ahead. They can see the way that others have walked. They can see what others are doing. They can see what's ahead, right? They, they, they have a different, a different lens. And so the, so when we talk about black women in, in, in the podcast, it's not because I, you know, I don't think any of us would say that we think black women have like, um, like a, something divine and unique in their humanity that others don't have, but, but they have through God's providence a particular vantage point, which has, nur- which has nurtured a social wisdom, and which is why it's important that everybody is we hear everybody's voice, that we hear the voices of women, that we hear the voices of black women, that we hear because because those vantage points really, really matter. And so that's why you have a Chisholm who says, I don't care if I win or not. I know I'm probably not gonna win, but I'm gonna bring my I'm gonna bring my vantage point because I can see something that you cannot see. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, I love that. I love that. Y'all, I'm really sad that this concludes our <gasps> Our series. <laughs> I really, really been enjoying it. But you know what? This is, you know, this theme will continue to come up and we will continue to lift up, you know, women, you know, that are embodying, you know, this resistance who, and who are doing it well. And so, uh, so I, yeah, I just thank you so much for all of your examples and um, just giving us more insight, you know, into historical figures and present figures that maybe we hadn't even thought about, you know, um, it's important to talk about the ways that uh, women, you know, ordinary women are doing extraordinary things like homeschooling their children, you know, and showing them that they're That's in the right. job. You know, uh, like Mother Boyton cutting her eye at the uh, a deputy who's beating her on the shoulder. Like that is just a normal response. Like, you know, and, and just, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm really, 
I, I love the way that this is filling out what resistance uh, looks like. So although this concludes our series, let's keep the conversation going on social media. So please tweet us your thoughts on resistance using the truth table hashtag uh, with historical and present examples or just comment on, you know, even our earlier series about what resistance means to you or even some scriptural examples. We love to hear from you, from all of you, our listeners. So let's. Yes. So let's um, keep the conversation going. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Truths Table. And you can also email us. Email us. Nice emails. Okay. <laughs> at uh, AskTruthsTable <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> oh, okay. Because we all know about the not so nice emails. <laughs> That's a whole other series, girl. That's a whole other series. Okay. We actually will do something about that. Maintain Lord, help your us. witness when you email. Maintain your witness when you email. <laughs> That's <us>. right. That's <laughs> right. Jesus reads your email, okay? <laughs> so, Let so him read your email before we read them receipts. Come on. Come on. Exactly. So, yes, please email us. Pray before you email us, okay? <laughs> <laughs> So yes, please, please pray for your emails. Email us at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on the Satchel Podcast Player. Truths Table is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African American Network and Pottery Studios. You can learn more about the Reformed African American Network by visiting randnetwork.org. Our producer for the show is Bo York. Thank you so much for taking a seat at the table with us this week. We have been your hosts, Ekemini, Christina, and Michelle. We'll see you soon on the next Truth's Table. Bye.